Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 27, Haiti and the Leclerc Expedition. Welcome back, everyone, and I really appreciate everyone's patience with me on getting out this latest episode. I know it's been about three weeks. I was at a wedding a couple of weeks ago in in our haste to get to the airport after waking up a little late. I completely forgot to pack my research materials for this episode. So while I did have my laptop, I had to wait to get back in order to get this episode together. But then as soon as we got back, I got called to a customer meeting for a few days, so I had to deal with that fire before getting back to the podcast. Obviously, pretty rotten timing, no doubt, but hey, it happens, and we are back this week with something I've been waiting to talk about for quite a while now, and that, of course, is the Haitian Revolution and Napoleon's response to it with the Leclerc Expedition. And we've got a lot to cover in this episode, and there are a lot of moving parts, but we'll get through it and have a better understanding of how it affected France, Napoleon, and their ambitions in the Caribbean and North America in general. So with all that said, let's dive into Haiti, or as it was known at the time, Saint-Domingue. Now the island, which we now call Hispaniola, was first colonized by Christopher Columbus after he took possession of the island in 1492 and named it Insula Hispania, literally the Spanish island. But while at first a Spanish colony, much of the Spanish colonial interests shifted to the American mainlands, particularly in Central and South America, which were rich in mineral deposits, notably silver, and that allowed for Spain to become one of the richest empires in history during the 16th century. Now, as a result of this, though, much of the influence on Hispaniola waned, and the island, along with the neighboring Tortuga, became a popular stopping ground for Caribbean pirates of French, English, and Dutch extraction. So while the Spanish did try multiple times to suppress their presence on the islands, the pirates would often return due to the abundance of natural resources as well as fresh water. Now Spain ultimately ordered the remaining Spanish population on the island to move closer to their main port, Santo Domingo, in order to avoid interaction with the pirates. But all this did was free up the western side of the island for more pirate ports. So by the mid-17th century, modern-day Haiti was a pirate haven, and it was here where the age of the buccaneers, essentially French privateers, became legendary. And eventually, more and more French sailors began to establish footholds on the island, and King Louis XIV would recognize the settlement of Tortuga in 1659. By the end of the century, Spain had all but officially recognized French claims to the western third of the island, a colony which they called Saint-Domingue, and which we today call Haiti. Now, to understand the Haitian Revolution, we also need to talk about the multitude of dynamics which were taking place on the colony of Saint-Domingue prior to the conflict, specifically regarding the social structure, that is to say, the racial caste system, the economic environment, and the impact that the French Revolution, and by extension the Enlightenment, had on the local population. Now, all these parts were innately intertwined, and that too was a big reason why the Haitian Revolution broke out, but 
At the heart of everything was the entrenched racial socioeconomic hierarchy, which had dictated life on the island for the better part of the colony's history, especially after the introduction of slavery. So let's start by talking about the social, racial, and economic environment, which was quickly turning into a powder keg that ultimately exploded at the end of the 18th century. After the French had established their permanent settlement on Saint-Domingue, they brought slaves with them to help work the large plantations, which became the beating heart of the colony's economy, specifically the cash crops of coffee and sugar. Now, I don't have time to go into all the details of planting and harvesting sugar and coffee, but just know that planting and harvesting coffee, while mundane, was a far cry from the brutal reality of harvesting sugar. Intense heat with sticky cane stalks and sharp branches, not to mention the brutal slave drivers, made the labor a miserable existence. But sugar, which made up as much as 60% of the GDP of the economy, was so important to the colony that the demand for slave labor was always high, especially since many of those slaves would ultimately die in the fields if they even made it during the treacherous sea voyage crossing the Atlantic Ocean. But the demand for slave labor also created a massive demographic shift on the island, in which, by the time of the French Revolution, slaves outnumbered the other castes of Saint-Domingue by a staggering 10 to 1 ratio. So to say that the fear of a slave rebellion was deep in the minds of the plantation owners would be quite the understatement, and their treatment of the slaves validated that line of thinking. Beatings, tortures, long hours of working, and even rape were used to force the slave population into submission, making them fear even the thought of rising up against their masters. Now, France was keen to keep the system in place because Saint-Domingue grew from obscure pirate hideout to the most lucrative colony in the Americas, and it could be argued that Port-au-Prince, the main port city and modern-day capital of Haiti, was one of the most important shipping ports in the world. Indeed, most of the duties and taxes collected by the French during port calls from ships became massive sources of revenue for the French budget, and we all know how that budget looked at the end of the 18th century. But I'm getting ahead of myself, because what's interesting about Saint-Domingue, and its major driver behind the revolution, was the social structure within Haiti. Now, I'm obviously oversimplifying here, but in general, there were three main social classes within Saint-Domingue. The Blancs, the jeunes de couleur libre, literally the free people of color, and, you know, the slaves. Now, within each of these classes, there were further subdivisions, and it's these subdivisions that really drove home much of the hatred, distrust, and ultimately violence that we're going to see here shortly. First on our docket, as well as first on the social hierarchy, were the Blancs, who were then subdivided into the Grand Blanc, these were the rich plantation owners who were French-born and who basically wanted to start a plantation, get extremely wealthy, and then hightail it back to France with their massive stacks of cash. After them were the Petit Blancs, who were your overseers, day laborers, artisans, and shopkeepers. Now, some of them were also French-born who were looking for a new lease on life out of the cold, drab world that made up the Third Estate, but many others were island-born Creoles, and these Creoles were the lowest class of the whites on the island. So, as you can probably imagine, each of these three classes of white Frenchmen all hated each other and were either envious or distrustful of the other for a myriad of reasons. Now, next came the free people of color, sometimes referred to as mulattoes, but that term now is usually considered racist and disparaging, so we won't be using it here, but just know that that term is used for the second group of people when we're talking about them historically. 
Now, the vast majority of the free people of color were of mixed race descent, usually a product of a white father, be it a plantation owner or a bourgeois white, and a black mother, usually a slave, but sometimes another free black woman of color. Now, these free people of color tended to be educated, had the same rights for the most part as any Frenchman, and often made up the French military contingents that were stationed throughout the Caribbean. Many of these French free people of color were either born free or would purchase their freedom through work if they had started their lives out as slaves. But once they were free, they did have the ability to move up in society, and many of these free people of color would become some of the wealthiest landowners on the island, and many of them would also purchase their own slaves, including the main man of our story, Toussaint Louverture. So, you know, right away, we can see that while the system was obviously racist from a 10,000-foot view, if you will, it contains numerous nuances and inner workings that we don't typically associate with the chattel slavery that was present in, say, the United States. Slaves could become free, and there were free people of color in the U.S., sure, but their chances of economic and social upward mobility were far more limited than what was afforded to the free people of color in Haiti. But the last group on our list was afforded no such freedom, and those, of course, were the slaves. Now, the vast majority of the slave population on Saint-Domingue at the time were African-born slaves, captured in conflicts or kidnapped back on the African mainland, and then they were sold to European slave traders, who were then put on slave ships, transported across the Atlantic in unthinkably barbaric conditions, and, should they survive, were sold at auction in many of the main port towns on the colony, usually Port-au-Prince or Le Cap, modern-day Hatien. But, much like the other two groups, there were subdivisions among the slaves themselves, namely those from Africa, the vast majority of those from the West African Yoruba tribes in modern-day Nigeria, and then the Creole slaves who were born on the island. Now, many of these Haitian-born slaves spoke a French Creole, known as Patois, and it was a predecessor to the modern language of Haitian Creole, which is the main language on the island today. Now, these slaves lived varying lives of solemn monotony on coffee plantations or as domestics to outright incomprehensible existences as tortured and beaten chattel bondage on the sugar plantations. Many of the men worked in the fields while some of the women were lucky enough to become homemakers, but there was always a threat of violence and rape, and in reality, there were likely few happy days amongst the slave population, if any at all. Not to say that they weren't able to form their own culture. Indeed, their blending of their African cultures and French influences created voodoo and did allow for a growing sense of community amongst the slave population. But again, let's be honest, the life of a slave was, especially in 18th century Saint-Domingue, tantamount to a death sentence. And then there was the relationship between all of these classes as well as their own subclasses. And again, nuance is important here, but I think French historian Paul Fergosi put it best. Quote, Whites, mulattoes, and blacks loathed each other. The poor whites couldn't stand the rich whites. The rich whites despised the poor whites. The middle-class whites were jealous of the aristocratic whites. The whites born in France looked down upon the locally born whites. Mulattoes envied the whites, despised the blacks, and were despised by the whites. Free Negroes brutalized those who were still slaves. Haitian-born blacks regarded those from Africa as savages. Everyone, quite rightly, lived in terror of everyone else. Haiti was hell, but 
Haiti was rich. I couldn't have said it better myself. Now, all of this searing tension was bound to boil over at some point, and indeed, rebelling slaves had always been a constant threat to the entrenched white supremacist hierarchy. But what really set off the chain of events that would become the Haitian Revolution was the importation of Enlightenment theory to the colony, as well as the French Revolution, both of which were inextricably tied to the other. Reynal and Diderot, for example, were both extremely critical of slavery as an institution, with Reynal going so far as to predict that all it would take for a slave rebellion of any colony would be their organization under a strong leader, one which he named a chief. And while he predicted this, and correctly as it would turn out, over a decade before the publishing of the Declarations of Rights of Man and of the Citizen, the Declaration would not heed his advice and left out the abolition of slavery from its charter. Now, the elite, enlightened, free people of color on Haiti were quick to point out the hypocrisy of the document as it pertained to the colonies in general and slaves specifically. But, hey, those slaves sure do make us a lot of money, and we're a little strapped for that right now. Best to pull the United States and kick that can down the road for a few decades. I doubt anything major will come of that decision. Now, one of the free blacks who was inspired by the importation of the Enlightenment theory was one of, if not the, most important player of our story today, and that is, of course, Toussaint Louverture. So, let's take a few minutes and give a quick rundown on Toussaint Louverture's life up until the start of the Haitian Revolution. Louverture was born on May 20th, 1743 in Le Cap, the son of a slave father named Hippolyte and an imported slave mother from the west coast of the continent. So, if you're doing the math, Louverture was nearly 50 years old at the time of the revolution broke out in earnest. In his youth, he earned the nickname the sickly stick for his thin gangly frame, though he would in time fill out enough to become a domestic slave and showed prowess in riding horses, earning him a job as a carriage driver and plantation overseer. Because he had a reputation as hardworking, he earned good favor with his petite blanc overseers, as well as the grand blanc owners, which meant that his siblings were able to gain domestic jobs as well, saving them from the brutal realities of labor in the fields. Now, up until the early 20th century, it was generally accepted that Louverture had been a slave up to the start of the Haitian Revolution. But in the later part of the century, marriage documents were found that had showed Louverture had been a freeman when they were registered in 1776 or 1777, meaning that he had likely acquired his freedom in either 1771 or 1772, just shy of age 30. Now, as a freedman, Louverture was able to navigate the complex web of social, economic, and racial tensions between all the social classes, but he was able to gain substantial wealth through his connections as a plantation owner, becoming a slave owner in his own right, and he quickly became one of the most influential freedmen in all of Saint-Domingue. Helping him in his quick rise through the social ladder was his education, obtained through his devout Catholicism and church attendance. As a result, he was able to earn a degree in theology, and it was through this that he furthered his interest in the Enlightenment philosophy, which was, as we've seen throughout the series, in vogue at the time. And as racial tensions began to rise in the 1780s, Louverture became a part of the chorus of free people of color who wanted to remain committed French patriots as well as royalists, believing that King Louis XVI would help advance their cause in obtaining equality. The Grand Blancs, though, despite similar shared interests with their fellow black plantation owners, were firmly in the other corner. Because ironically, it was the Grand Blancs who were screaming the loudest for complete autonomy of the island. 
Believing that this new class of bureaucrats from the National Assembly would impose even harsher taxes on Saint-Domingue, and likely additional rights for the free blacks, it was they who clamored for full independence, while many of the free blacks aligned themselves with the royalists and the British, believing that if the Grand Blancs achieved independence for the island, it would be all the persons of color who would inevitably suffer, and, you know, fair. Eventually, in May of 1791, the French government would grant full citizenship in revolutionary France to free persons of color, but the Grand Blancs would refuse to recognize that decision. And unsurprisingly, this led to increasing clashes between the Grand Blancs and the free people of color, and it was here that Louverture began to align himself with the growing rebel cause, despite his aristocratic position in the colony. And it's ironic, too, that the Grand Blancs were so adamant about keeping their own individual autonomy separate from the free blacks, because both actually had shared interests. They were at the top of the socioeconomic hierarchy, they were all mostly slave owners, and they controlled the vast majority of the resources on the island. But it is here where we really see the racism rear its ugly head and ultimately spell doom for white domination on the island. It became clear to the free blacks on the island that, again, despite their shared economic interests, their best hope of success would be to align themselves with a large slave population should these tensions begin to boil over into a full-on civil war. Now, Many of the slaves were not exactly keen to make alliances with the free blacks. Make no mistake, these free blacks were not their brethren, but just another form of master who just so happened to look like them. They still employed slave drivers, still enforced inhumane treatment of their fellow man for their own economic gain, and in a perfect world were more content with keeping them in bondage had the political climate been any different. But it was not, and in 1791 one of the most important events in the history of the Americas, began. Within fighting between the Free Blacks and Grand Blancs, keeping both groups distracted, the slaves began to plot their revenge for the centuries of brutal treatment that they had suffered. On the night of August 21st, 1791, after a large voodoo ceremony, which was allegedly accompanied by a thunderstorm seen as an omen from God, slaves began a rebellion which would change the course of history. Within months, they had already overtaken the entire northern province of Saint-Domingue, and through a campaign of brutal pillaging, murder, plantation destruction, as well as refusal to take prisoners, the slaves had sent shockwaves through much of Europe and the newly formed United States of America, all of whom were terrified that the news of this rebellion would lead to similar revolts in their colonies. Whites of all social classes were murdered, plantation owners' wives were raped, and even French children were killed their heads paraded on spikes throughout the cities as warnings to any oncoming French resistance. Within three months, over 4,000 whites had been killed and nearly 200 plantations had been completely destroyed. It seemed almost inevitable that the slaves would take over the colony completely. But the whites, who had long anticipated such a revolt, though admittedly not quite of the magnitude they had faced at that moment, did have some defensive positions established and would in turn offer resistance of their own killing upwards of 15,000 blacks by the end of September of 1791. Now, by 1792, France had organized a military response after their offer of granting rights to the free blacks failed. Now, Britain and Spain, who owned the eastern portion of Hispaniola, if you remember, offered weapons and logistical support to the rebelling slaves. 
And indeed, many of the rebellion's leaders, including Louverture, were employed by the Spanish military, which gave them the necessary campaign knowledge they needed in order to mount a successful military response. Now, this wasn't out of some moral compass or out of compassion for the slaves' cause. No, no, that wouldn't be like 18th century Britain or Spain. Rather, it was done to weaken revolutionary France and hopefully take over the lucrative colony for themselves. So on the one hand, yes, they feared such an event happening in their own colonies, but on the other, hey, France being a little weaker never hurt anyone, right? And since they were about to be at war with revolutionary France, the timing just happened to be so perfect. Now while tensions remained high, much of the violence experienced in 1791 and 1792 waned some in 1793. And then in 1794, France abolished slavery in all of her colonies, hoping that it would end the Haitian question once and for all, as well as to shake off the support that the rebels had been getting from Spain and Britain. Now, this move also sent shockwaves throughout the Americas as well as back in Europe, but France did so because, well, they felt like they had no other option. The governor that the National Assembly sent to the colony, Le Guerre Félicite Santonax, initially offered many slaves freedom should they join his forces before France relented and abolished it altogether. But Santanax had hoped he could use these forces against foreign invasions. But of course, it wasn't that simple. Britain, for example, was not going to lay down so easily, and in late 1793, sent an expeditionary force to take the colony, hoping to gain the lucrative sugar plantations that alerted the island. When they arrived in May of 1794, after the slavery abolition, they decided to bypass other ports and landed directly at Port-au-Prince, where there were already numerous ships loaded with sugar waiting for export. From here, we could see numerous rival factions split between the French, Spanish, British, as well as the numerous rebel slave camps out in the mountains. All of this further added to the chaos that was already swallowing up the island, and it was only going to get worse over the course of the decade. Now, this is generally considered to be the end of the first phase of the Haitian Revolution. And we've obviously glanced over several important people and events, and I'm going to continue to do that because we just can't spend hours getting lost in the Haitian Revolution. But just know that the second phase of the Haitian Revolution saw Louverture come to dominate the local political scene, and in 1801, after having conquered the entire island of Hispaniola, by the way, named himself governor for life. He put peasants back to work and encouraged many of the French proprietors to return to their plantations under the auspices of a semi-autonomous Haiti. But Napoleon, who had been watching from afar, had just returned home from his second Italian campaign and could now put his full attention onto the troublesome colony, and boy oh boy was he about to put all of his attention into the troublesome colony. Because that, finally brings us to the doomed Leclerc expedition. As I mentioned, Louverture, feeling the effects of his successful conquest throughout the island, had likely gone too far. Again, declaring himself governor for life, as well as hunting down Santo Domingo Governor Don Joaquim Garcia in January of 1801, which violated the 1795 Peace of Basel between Haiti and Spain, by the way, Louverture was beginning to push his boundaries. Napoleon, who, if you remember at this time, was busy retaking northern Italy from the Austrians, and after his victory at Marengo and the signing of Luneville, Napoleon was now free to begin concerning himself with France's internal affairs. And one of the islands on the top of the docket was, of course, Haiti. 
Now, many of his officers were now free from major campaigns and with most of them itching for a chance of military glory. Napoleon decided to try and end the Haitian ulcer once and for all. It was draining resources from France, was ultimately becoming an embarrassment internationally, and, well, Napoleon, high off of himself from the Italian campaign, believed that he could take it over. And so, in February of 1801, Napoleon decided to appoint his brother-in-law, Charles Leclerc, as head of an expeditionary force to reassert French control of the island. Now, initially, Napoleon believed that France and the rebel contingent could come to some sort of middle ground. He planned to confirm the military ranks and lands acquired by Toussaint's officers during their campaigns, as well as to offer Toussaint the role of lieutenant of France over the island while confirming the abolition of slavery. However, Napoleon's ask was that France would maintain final authority over the island, which was something that the former slaves, who had given their literal blood, sweat, and tears in this campaign to, were unable to accept. They would accept nothing less than independence, full stop. And so, with Louverture issuing the July Constitution in 1801, as well as establishing Haiti as an independent nation, Napoleon, who had always personally admired Louverture, by the way, shifted his stance and decided to move ahead with a full military campaign to disarm the rebels, arrest Louverture and his officers, and have them deported back to France. Napoleon knew that Louverture would offer up a stiff resistance, and with 16,000 men at his disposal, all of them battle-hardened, Napoleon took all the precautionary measures he could think of to ensure that the campaign would be successful. Leclerc was given command of a 30,000-man-strong army pulled from all across the continent, including the famed Polish legions, who would make a name for themselves for their bravery in the upcoming fighting. On December 14, 1801, the expedition began, and in total, 31,131 troops would be landed in Haiti from countries across the French sphere of influence, as well as from Spain, who were keen on reconquering Santo Domingo. Now, we didn't mention these individuals, and they played an integral part in the Haitian Revolution, but again, we just don't have the time to go into all the nitty-gritty details as well as mention all the major players here. But interestingly enough, among the French ranks were former Haitian revolutionary figures André Rigaud, as well as future Haitian president Alexandre Pétion, who Louverture had expelled from the colony two years prior, following Louverture's victory in the Civil War, known as the War of the Knives, which resulted in Louverture's complete consolidation of power on the island. Now, when Leclerc's ships began to be spotted around the island, with some intending to dock at the Bay of Samana in Santo Domingo and others at La Cap and Port-au-Prince, Louverture ordered his generals to listen to any potential offers of parley by the French. Now, some of these generals are also major players in the Haitian Revolution, including Henri Christophe, who headed up the Northern Department, and future Emperor Jacques I, Jean-Jacques Dessalines. And unfortunately, we don't have enough time to go into them here today, but please do look up their biographies if you have a chance, especially Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who is normally considered to be the modern, the modern father of Haiti. But Louverture also said that if no offer parlay was put forth, that his generals were ordered to begin massacring the town's white population before any landing could occur and then retreat into the mountains. There just was no in-between. But the French, unfortunately for them, were in no mood for parlay. French Admiral Louis Thomas Villaret de Jouez arrived to Le Cap on February 3rd, 1802, and began his attack on the island. Haitian General Christophe obeyed his orders given by Louverture and ordered his men to begin killing the white population and setting fire to the town, 
which they did, slitting the throats of any whites that they could find. General Donatien Marie Joseph de Rochambeau, a son of the more famous Comte de Rochambeau of American Revolutionary War fame, landed on February 6th and captured Fort Dauphin, while Leclerc simultaneously landed in Le Cap, putting out the fires and setting up defensive positions, while also burying the numerous bodies that littered the city streets. Now, one can only imagine the horrors before him and his men, but with the Haitian army in the surrounding mountains, they had little time to mourn their dead countrymen. But initially, it actually seemed as though Leclerc would achieve a quick victory. In the first week and a half of the expedition, the French were able to capture the island's vital ports, towns, and much of the arable farmlands. With only a few brigades under his command, Louverture was actually in a precarious situation. But he did hold thousands of white hostages, and with his position in the mountains surrounded by thick vegetation, he had the advantage of launching surprise ambush attacks against an enemy that had little knowledge of the surrounding area. Thus, while heavily outnumbered, the fact that he could lure large French columns into the mountains into those choke points really bode well for his smaller forces, and it was something that he used to his advantage over the next coming months. But Leclerc also had a few aces up his sleeve, namely the sons of Louverture, who were studying back in France and had accompanied the expedition as Napoleon's bargaining chips. You see, in theory, Napoleon would allow Louverture to maintain control of the island and no harm would come to his sons should he surrender peacefully. But Louverture had just come too far to lay down his arms. And thus, on February 17th, Leclerc launched a simultaneous attack on Fort Dauphin, Marmalade, and Plaisance. The plan was to surprise Louverture and force him to retreat back to Les Gonaïves, where he would then be encircled. Now, despite the difficulty of the terrain and the numerous ambushes by the retreating Haitians, the plan was successful, well, at least initially. A week later, the French entered Le Gonaïve, which was left burning by the fleeing Haitians, and the streets were full of blood from the massacred white population, which was ordered by Jean-Jacques Dessalines. Now, the French were then beginning to feel the brunt force of the attrition in the terrain. Disease began to swell in the ranks, and the Haitians, undeterred by the larger French numbers, began slaughtering any white residents that they could find to break the French resolve. At Leverey, the French forces found the dead bodies of 800 men, women, and children, and the fleeing Haitians killed any POWs that they took. But the Haitians were also running low on resources. And believe it or not, by the end of April and beginning of May, many of the rebels began to reconcile the situation. Order was slowly but surely coming back to the island, and the ports were even reopened to trade. Christophe even offered to lay down his arms should he be given the same treatment as had been given to previous rebel leaders, and his capitulation led to that of Dessalines and, finally, of Louverture. By May, Toussaint Louverture was placed under house arrest, but he was allowed to keep his rank and even his plantation. With casualties swelling on both sides, Leclerc was just content with keeping the status quo to ensure peace on the island. But if we haven't learned this already, Louverture was not one to go quietly into the night. Seeing the French ranks ravaged by arguably his best ally, Yellow Fever, he noticed the expeditionary forces lost nearly half of their numbers in less than two months. Louverture continued to correspond with rebel leaders and warned them to be ready to fight in the event that his order came. But at the same time, many of the rebel leaders were tired of over a decade of war and bloodshed, and some even warned Leclerc of Louverture's orders. 
fed up with giving him numerous chances and even allowing him to keep his aristocratic position on the island. Leclerc ordered Louverture in for a conference, had him arrested, and then sent him back to Europe for exile, where he would live out the remainder of his days at the Fort de Joux in the Jura Mountains. Now, there is still some debate as to whether Louverture was betrayed by his former colleagues, especially Dessalines, into coming to this meeting. And Dessalines would, for a time, defect over to Leclerc's side, likely to save himself from a similar fate. But for Louverture, his fate was all but sealed. Despite his numerous victories and earning himself the title of the founding father of Haiti, Louverture would never again see his homeland, and he would die in a cold French prison on April 7, 1803, at the age of 59. It was an ignominious end to what had been a legendary life. So, with all of this in consideration, it can be safe to assume that the Leclerc expedition had succeeded, right? Well, no. Because... On May 20th, 1802, Napoleon issued the aptly named Law of May 20th, 1802, which revoked the Law of February 4th, 1793, and reinstituted slavery in all the French colonies. Now, while the law technically included Saint-Domingue, they wouldn't receive word until its re-implementation in Guadeloupe. But once word arrived on the island, anger began to swell amongst the black population, and Leclerc, sensing that hostilities would resume again, decided to take action by disarming them before they could mount an attack. This, naturally, infuriated them further, and over the following weeks, more and more blacks and mixed-race coloreds joined forces against the French expeditionaries. Now, many of the former black leaders who had defected over to Leclerc, including Dessalines, had now decided to take up arms against them, and by the late summer of 1802, Leclerc was suffering from insurmountable defections and diseases. War crimes were then perpetrated by both sides, with Haitian leaders massacring French and Polish troops in mass, and with Leclerc ordering blacks to be pushed off the sides of ships with sacks of flour tied around their necks. The hatred swelled such that even loyal black officers to Leclerc were not spared, and their families were all ordered murdered. Trust was but a word of a bygone era in 1802 Saint-Domingue. By the end of the year, the mission's failure was all but official. Leclerc Unable to hold on to the poor towns, fled to Tortuga, where he succumbed to the same fate as the majority of his soldiers on November 2nd, 1802. He died of yellow fever. He was just 30 years old and left behind Napoleon's sister, Pauline, as a widow. And despite her numerous affairs, she was reportedly heartbroken over hearing of his death and cut off all of her hair, put it in his coffin, and kept his heart in an urn. Rochambeau then took command and ordered the dogs of their campaign starved so that they would hunt down the blacks and live off of, quote, only Negro meat. And while barbaric, this did little to help further their cause, and by the end of 1803, the last French ships would leave Saint-Domingue for good following the Battle of Vertier. Dessalines would proclaim the founding of the Republic of Haiti on January 1st, 1804, and that would begin a further 200-plus years of eternal struggle for the nation over international recognition, corruption, poverty, and basic human rights. But for the French, the Leclerc expedition, while often overlooked today, was actually one of the costliest campaigns of Napoleon's career, with only between seven and 8,000 soldiers returning home to France from the original 31,000 that disembarked to Saint-Domingue. 
And while we obviously glossed over a bunch of important events and details regarding the Haitian Revolution and many of the important players therein, as it pertains to our story, the outcome was the same. France would no longer have its most lucrative colony in the Caribbean to further its own economic growth during the early years of Napoleon's reign. But more importantly, from a humanitarian perspective, the Leclerc expedition and Napoleon's reaction to the Haitian Revolution in its entirety are truly some of the darker aspects of his legacy. Napoleon is not exactly a celebrated figure in Haiti, obviously, as one would imagine. Indeed, Napoleon, rather than seizing on the opportunity to work with Louverture, a man he had come to respect, decided on going all in to retake an essentially lost cause. It cost him a valuable ally, a brother-in-law, and 24,000 men he certainly could have used just over a decade later when the Battle of Waterloo took place, which, by the way, paled in comparison to the Leclerc expedition in terms of casualties and deaths. But the expedition also shone a rather dark light in Napoleon's role as the quintessential enlightened despot. Yes, he believed in personal liberties and the advancement of society, but he did so at the cost of numerous lives and by reinstituting slavery, a practice that, even in the early 19th century, had come to be seen as morally wrong and incompatible with the Enlightenment-era philosophies. And much of the isolation that the newly independent Haiti would come to see over the coming decades was, in fact, a direct result of the rage Napoleon and his Bourbon successors felt towards their former colony, one which they viewed was run by savages rather than a persecuted people who gave everything that they had just to obtain their personal freedom. And many of the issues Haiti faces even today, in 2023, can be traced back to these decisions just over 220 years ago. And as we watch the country turn into a virtual failed state, it is important to remember these events, and that this country, this small, tiny, partial island nation, was the first successful slave rebellion in human history that led to the formation of a sovereign nation. And that is important because, well, that is something. The Austrians might have been able to defeat Napoleon, a bunch of ragtag Haitian slaves and their colored allies sure as hell could. And that, above all, is a story for the legends. So we're going to leave it there for this week. And yes, again, probably for the fifth time, I know I missed a bunch of events, battles, and important players in our story, but it's tough to fit one of the most important events in human history into a single 30-ish minute episode. So give me some credit. And if you do want to learn more about the entirety of the Haitian Revolution, I certainly suggest you check out Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast, in which he goes into excellent detail on the entire event, and it was a great source material for this episode as well. But with that being said, I do hope this helped to give some detail on the Haitian Revolution, as well as the important role it played in our story of Napoleon Bonaparte. And that story is going to pick up again next week, as we discuss the year of peace in Europe its fragility, and the complicated web of alliances that planted the seeds for the upcoming War of the Third Coalition. And that's the one where Napoleon goes from General of the Fields to the General of the History Books. (laughs) 